This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Joining us now is Natalie Preddy, a travel and lifestyle expert. Good morning, Natalie. Good morning, Simi. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. So are you feeling pretty optimistic about this today? Oh, I am excited. <laughs> this is uh, this is going to be great. This is what uh, travelers have been waiting for for over two years. Of course, we spoke uh, a few weeks ago when uh, the PCR test was dropped right. uh, coming back into Canada. But of course, there was still the RAT test. There's still some hesitation for travelers there. People are still afraid of getting stuck in a country for 10 days, 14 days. But for fully vaccinated travelers, this is now an opportunity uh, to finally go see the world, to to get involved in that revenge travel, as they're calling it. People are just <laughs> booking fast and furious, and they're booking these big trips. Um, and I think that today we, we're going to get that uh, go-ahead. Revenge travel. Okay, that's a new one. I had not heard that before, but what, what does revenge travel look like? So revenge travel is... Um, Basically, all of that pent up travel bug inside of you waiting to get out and you just start booking and you're booking your big trips and you're booking your long haul flights uh, because you want to just get away and, and really check out those bucket list experiences. Okay, so what, is, what do we need to know that if everybody else is going to be doing this, Natalie, it just feels like there's going to be some kind of rush on. Absolutely. And, you know, th- there's always a, a, a downside, you know, we glass half empty, half full. Yes, we can travel, but yes, it's going to cost more. Um, tourists, uh, tourism companies have all have a lot of time uh, to make up for. So prices are going to be higher. Um, and its availability is going to be lower as well. When it comes to traveling, if you can be flexible on your time of travel, on your dates, that's how you're really going to find those lower cost flights, lower cost uh, stays. Um, And also, you know, with the fuel issues we're dealing with at the moment, uh, it's just frankly more expensive to fly a plane. So that's going to be reflected in, in prices as well. What, we're talking about Canadians here getting ready to travel, but what about tourists coming here? What kind of a difference do you think this will make? I think we'll see um, more people. Uh, this is really the first time uh, that cruise ships are going to be able to come back into Canada. Uh, that is a big deal out in Vancouver. You're going to see those cruise ships coming into port. There's going to be more people around uh, tourist destinations in and around the city are going to become more popular. It's going to be a great boost of economy, but it, you know, life is just going to get busier again. Yeah. Do you see this as a return to normal? Well, I mean, I think normal has changed. You know, I don't think uh, we're ever going to return to what we had in 2019, just because I think we're all, we've all changed, Um, you know, and depending on where you're going, they might not have the same mandates. There still might be some testing on arrival. So, you know, that is something you need to check in terms of mask wearing right now to get on a plane, you still need to wear a mask. Um, But even being out and around this March break, we've seen record numbers of people out in uh, public places uh, at tourist destinations. So I I don't think we're ever going to return to what 
it was prior to COVID. Um, but in terms of the numbers of people out there and looking to travel, I think we're going to see close to those numbers again. Right. People have adapted, haven't they, Natalie? You made a good point about, listen, if you're getting on an airplane, we don't know anything about those rules changing. So you'll still have yes. to mask up at this point in the airport and on an airplane. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, wherever you're going, they still might have their own restrictions. So you do need to check with your destination um, as to what they require for entry. And if your hotel still requires masking in public places, things like that. So this is this is just looking at what it uh, what you need to do to come into Canada. But going out there will still be restrictions. And so research is still required before traveling. Okay. And you talked about price increases. Are you seeing that by the way, like with the fuel prices, we know that impacts airlines have prices gone up in the last couple of weeks. Absolutely. And demand is (laughs) very high. I had friends who couldn't book anything this week. There was just nothing left. And if you look at some destinations over the next few months, they are sold out already. And anything that is left is being sold at a premium. And it's just because there is such high demand. All right, we'll see what happens. Natalie, thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate your time. That's Natalie Pretty, travel and lifestyle expert, talking about expected changes. When I say expected, I mean soon. In a little over an hour now, 7.30 a.m. our time is the press conference with uh, numerous federal ministers, including the health minister, the transport minister, where it is expected that they will announce that the end of arrival antigen COVID-19 testing, meaning you can plan that trip and you don't have to have that test done within 24 hours when you return. Now, here in BC, what that means is a lot of people might start planning a trip across the border, right? Driving, I mean. Uh, We are kind of very situated close to the American border and it's nothing for a lot of people out there, and I'm sure you might be one of them, to go down there for an afternoon, go do a little shopping, go to the Target, go to, you know, Bellis Fair, do whatever get some gas, get some groceries, come back. What I'm asking you this morning is, are you ready to do that? Are you thinking, okay, if that's what this announcement is this morning, I'm going. That's it. It's first chance I get. I am heading down there, whether it is to get a bit of a relief from the high gas prices or just to do some shopping, whatever the case may be. Are you ready to head down there? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's that time of year to think about doing your taxes. And apparently, it's also the time to think about scams. Why is that? Well, police say that they usually see a spike right around this time of year in mail theft and fraud scams relating to income taxes and the Canada Revenue Agency. Apparently, this happens every February to April. So we thought, well, let's find out more about these scams so that you can be on alert for them. Joining us now is Sergeant Peter DeVries, a media relations officer for North Vancouver RCMP. Good morning and thank you for being here. Well, good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on. Is this like a regular thing, like clockwork for this time of year? Yeah, I mean... We see these trends come and go, and, and often they're seasonal. And one of those is, are, you know, an increase in these scams that happens around tax time. You know, people are filing their taxes. They're getting mail from CRA. They're getting their T4s from their employers. And these are times when criminals um, like to capitalize on the fact that people's personal information is being sent back and forth in the mail. And yeah, it does seem to trend upwards around this time between February and May when people are doing all these sorts of activities. 
And so what what are some of the things that they're doing? How are they trying to get money out of people? Well, there's a number of different formats that they use. And, and you know, when when they steal mail, one of the things they try to do is, is steal your identity. And they will try to, um, you know, create a false identification in your name. And they can apply for loans or credit cards and then rack up these huge bills. And then you may not even know about it until months later when creditors and, and collectors start contacting you saying, hey, you're not paying your bill. You're not, um, you know, paying this line of credit that you have. And it may be a complete surprise to you that this has been done in your name. And so is there anything you can do, do you think, to prevent this from happening? Like, what are some of the signs that you need to, you know, prevent all that from happening? Yeah, I, you know, we always try to warn people about these CRA tax scams, and many of us have gotten these calls. I've gotten these calls, this automated, you know, electronic-sounding voice that says, this is the CRA, you have an outstanding right. tax balance. And then they threaten to arrest you or that they tell you that there's a judgment against you. We want people to know that the CRA does not do that. They don't call and threaten you to pay your tax debt. They don't uh, threaten you with being arrested or deported if you don't pay immediately. They never collect money from you in public and say, meet us here. So we want people to get the message that when they get those calls from the quote-unquote fake CRA, not to fall for those things. Don't be afraid to hang up. Don't be afraid to say no. Um, And then as far as protecting your mail, we always tell people, you know, collect your mail regularly. If you're going to be away on a holiday, have your neighbor collect your mail. Don't let piles of mail um, uh, fill up outside your door because um, criminals will try to capitalize on that. They'll steal your mail. And if there's a credit card in there or if there's a uh, statement in there from your credit card company, or if there's personal information that's come in from the CRA or from your employer, they can use that to piece by piece build a false identity and, and commit these kinds of frauds. So you talked about the phone calls that people get, and I myself, I've gotten lots of those, whether it's my cell phone or my home phone, and yes, I still have my home phone. Um, but they sound really scary when you get them, where even I sometimes have had to think twice about that. They do, don't they? And that's that's their bread and butter. That's what they do. They really try to provoke this fear reaction in you. And as soon as you start feeling that fear and anxiety, your your thoughts you start to lose the ability to think critically. And that's just a natural part of, of human nature. When you feel fear, your your critical thinking starts to diminish. And that's what they play on. They capitalize that. So they provoke fear automatically, saying, you owe this money and you need to pay. And if you don't pay, you're going to be arrested. And people stop thinking. They think, well, wait a minute, this isn't how the CRA operates. And so we always we always want people to just take a moment, take a breath, Don't be afraid to say no. Don't be afraid to hang up. Don't be afraid to ask them to call back. One of the tricks that they play is that you'll receive this automated voice message. It'll sound like a computer, and it'll ask you to press 1 to be connected to an agent. Well, if you do this, if you press 1, what will happen is a real person will come on the phone. It will connect to a call-taking center somewhere in the world, and a real person will pick up the phone, and then they will ask you for your name. And that's one of the tricks they play because once they have your name then they start building on that they'll they'll take little pieces of information that they ask you to give them and they'll use that to build a story about how you owe um yeah, how you owe money but i've pressed one to 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 speak to these people before just as a as a way of experimenting and i 
when it got to the point where they asked me my name, I said, how come you don't have my name? If you're calling me, how come you don't have my name? And they don't have your name. Oh, and you know what, fact, Sergeant DeVries, I was really hoping that you would say at that point, you said, my name is Sergeant DeVries and I work at the North Vancouver RCMP. I, I have totally done that as well. <laughs> I have done that and they hang up pretty quickly. <laughs> so it's interesting though, they're quite bold and some of them have even continued asking me and saying, well, it doesn't matter. I don't care that you're, you're the police, you owe this money. Oh, really? So they can be very, yeah, very aggressive and, and they're, 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 they have these scripts that they use um, but if you push back and if you question them, eventually they say, okay, this is not an easy target. And then they'll just hang up on you. So that's a really good one. Then to just say to like, if you find yourself on the line, be like, well, no, you have all my info. Why don't you know this about me? Yeah. And I've asked them that question and they have no answer. And that's usually when they hang up. Uh, also, are you ever surprised at the lengths that these scammers go to? Like, these sound like a lot of work. And I always wonder, you know, imagine if these scammers got a regular job and worked this hard. Well, potentially sometimes they can get lots of money from a person. A person who has, uh, you know, say savings in their accounts or has a retirement fund, um, there are many people who have fallen for these tricks and lost thousands and thousands of dollars. So the potential payoff for these criminals can be quite lucrative. And so I think it's, they see the value in pursuing it. And, we, uh, you know, one of the messages we want people to get is that the CRA will never ask someone to make a payment via Bitcoin. And this is one of the means yes. by which criminals will try to get actual money. They'll, they'll tell the person, you know, they can pay this debt by going to a Bitcoin machine and, and taking money out of their bank account, going to the Bitcoin machine and depositing the money into the Bitcoin machine. And then, of course, once it's gone into, yeah. um, you know, uh, cryptocurrency, it's very, very difficult to track. And the reality is you probably will never see that money again. So, you know, the CRA, if you go to the CRA website, they have some really good tips and, and advice on what constitutes a legitimate call from the CRA. And just remember, yeah. the CRA will never demand immediate payment. They'll never be aggressive. They're not going to threaten you with arrest. And if you do receive one of these calls, don't be afraid to say no. Don't be afraid to, to hang up. If they need to get in touch with you, they will yeah. call you back. Exactly. Thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, in a few minutes, we expect to hear from the federal government that they will be ending their pre-entry testing requirement for fully vaccinated travelers. And it's expected that that will happen at the end of this month. Now, that is according to sources, news confirmed by Global News. What does it mean? Well, it means that it could be a whole new era for the tourism industry. So we thought, let's talk about that. Walt Judas joins us now, CEO of the BC Tourism Association. Good morning, Walt. Good morning, Simi. All right. You sound like you have a bit of a spring in your step this morning. Are you feeling positive? <laughs> Very positive. If it's the news that uh, is purported to come out of Ottawa, then our industry is very bullish about the coming year. It's long overdue. As you know, we've been lobbying for this for a long, long time, at least to have a specific date in place. And it looks like that's going to happen. And that provides a huge sigh of relief to many operators that count on international visitors. Do you think it has been that uh, pre-testing, the pre-entry testing requirement that has prevented a lot of tourists from coming back? No question. Anytime that you create barriers like that, people have other choices. And when other countries have been opening up 
they are marketing very aggressively and very ambitiously to try to attract that traveler. And if it if it's simple to get into those countries for fully vaccinated travelers, that's more likely the place to go. Plus, when you combine the testing requirements and the uh, Arrive Can app, which is confusing for many visitors, you're just creating barriers all the way along. And can people have said, I'm not going to go to Canada now or British Columbia now, I'll wait till sometime down the road, which obviously doesn't help us. But with the restrictions being lifted, that will definitely be much better for our industry in the coming days. Although we recognize it's too late for spring break, but at least we have a chance to plan for the rest of the year. Okay, so is the industry ready for that, though? Is there the capacity to open up all those hotel rooms, get everything up and running again? Yes and no. I think the industry is more than ready in many respects. But as you know, we've talked about this before, we have a severe labor shortage in our sector and it's trying to find the requisite number of staff that we need to build back up to capacity. That's going to take some time. It means you won't have as a visitor the same level of service that you might expect. There could be some parts of your operation that are closed or limited hours, but nonetheless, you, know, you you basically have to be ready. You have no other choice because these are the visitors that we've been dying to, uh, to welcome back. And uh, now's the time to do it. And we have to be as prepared as we can be. So what does that mean when you talk about being prepared? What should businesses involved in the tourism industry be doing right now? Well, there's a number of things, and it really depends on the type of business, but obviously you're going to be marketing and trying to attract that uh, lucrative visitor that comes from an international destination. You're going to put your people in place and have as many staff as you can possibly hire and retain at this point. You need to order supplies in some cases. You're planning your trip itineraries. There's a number of things that uh, all operators are doing now. And have been all the way along, to be fair. But, um, you know, you've got sectors, for example, that have effectively been shut down. And we've talked about this before. The cruise sector and and, uh, meetings and events, those are all gearing up again. And uh, it requires a lot of preparation time for all of these operators. They've uh, They've been doing that for the last number of months, but now dialing it up to that next level to welcome the international guests in uh, a more profound way than we have in the past. Right, because I would say, well, like people here domestically tried to support the industry as much as possible, didn't we? We did, and uh, domestic tourism in parts of the province was very good. The last couple of years, lots of people traveling within British Columbia and to British Columbia from other parts of Canada. But we also have to look at it from the perspective of revenues and spending of domestic visitors versus international travelers. For example, in Vancouver, about a quarter of the visitors would be from other destinations or other countries, I should say. But they spend about 46% of the revenues or they generate 46% of the revenues for businesses. So domestic tourism, while good, it just doesn't allow many operators to survive. And many in our sector rely almost exclusively on international visitors. I mentioned cruise earlier. Mm-hmm. 80% of the passengers that might travel out of Vancouver to Alaska are from the United States or those that are stopping in Victoria en route to Alaska. That's but one sector. If you look at adventure tourism, 
pretty much all of their clients, whether you're a fishing lodge business or you're a helicat operator, they're all international. So that's where a lot of the revenue is generated. It's not domestic visitors who tend to do a lot of stuff on their own and don't do many of the things that internationals do. All right. When you say international visitors, though, do you mean all over the world or are we talking about United States visitors primarily? All over the world, but to be fair, the United States is our largest international market. We see more visitors from the United States than all of the other countries combined. But um, but still, those uh, internationals from the other countries, Europe and Australia and elsewhere, are vitally important to our sector. And as you know, we had such a growing market from places like China and India prior to the pandemic. It's going to take a while to bring them back again and to get people comfortable traveling and visiting international destinations. But I also alluded to earlier, there's significant competition. Many destinations that have opened up are looking to welcome visitors back and they're very ambitiously marketing. And so we've got a job to do in Canada to ensure that we see those international visitors again and build back up to where we were prior to the pandemic. But that's a really good point, though, Walt. So I, you're right. I'm seeing some very aggressive tourism campaigns on TV, online, everywhere. Do we have one of those ready to go? Do we have a, like a, a campaign to tell people, no, 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 come here? No question. We do. In fact, Destination British Columbia has been preparing for this for a long, long time, and they are doing some marketing. And and they look to those markets where we know we'll see a lot of visitation from places in the United States, for example, Washington State, California, but even beyond. Destination Canada is also poised to do that kind of marketing, as are the individual destination marketing organizations like Destination Vancouver and Destination Greater Victoria and elsewhere. So the marketing is beginning, but when once you lift the barriers like uh, the Canada is about to do now, then you'll see more of that. Of course, we don't, we're not exposed to it here, but rest assured it is happening. All right. Well, I'm sure there's going to be lots of excitement in your offices today. Walt, thank you. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know that British Columbians show up to help whenever there is a disaster or a catastrophe. We saw it with the flooding. We saw it with the wildfires. And now we know people here are eager to welcome displaced persons from Ukraine. So where is the effort to settle Ukrainian refugees? Where are they going to go and what can you do to help? Well, for more on that, we're joined now by our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, usually when it comes to settling refugees in the province, the first moves are made by the government, right? They announce programs, they handle logistics, community gets involved kind of as the last step with integration. But with Ukraine, things happen so quickly, faster than anyone could have predicted. So the community here, they didn't wait. They started mobilizing right away. And I think just back to, I mean, only three weeks ago, but when we started seeing that influx into the rest of Europe of those refugees, I thought, okay, we're going to start welcoming them here too, probably in the province, given our large Ukrainian community. And the community here has been organizing since day one of the invasion. And Elvira Mruchkovska is with the Ukrainian Congress in BC. So she volunteered to start a database and it was a huge undertaking. Uh, The database is for collecting info from people all over BC who are looking to sign up to help with the refugee effort. And 250 people have already signed up 
two host families in their home or their, in some cases, it's been a second accommodation, that kind of thing. And they uh, are also asking for people to do things like donate money, resources, gift certificates, also semi time and skills, uh, you know, even it could be legal help or employment help. And so they are getting a huge influx of that kind of information for this database so that they can help handle people when they arrive. What's happened in Ukraine was obviously so traumatizing for the community here that the only way to get by for many of them was to do something was to, to get involved. And I spoke with uh, Elvira about how she's just thrown her time into the database because she's uh, very hopeful that Ukrainians are going to get through this period that uh, after the war, they'll be even more strong and united. The most important thing in this country, it's a people. And I think after the war, when we definitely will get a victory, people will absolutely put all hands just to rebuild, to recovery and come back, continue to live. I can't believe really I'm looking for the news for these places, even streets, building, when I have been a lot of time and I can't imagine anymore it destroyed it. No more beautiful museums and all architecture and our heritage. It's so hard. It's so hard to realize it's not anymore. However, I believe in my people. Okay, so what is being done to help the refugees here? So right now, in this phase of the database, they are basically collecting so much information from people in BC that want to help out so that when the government uh, announces more of a concrete plan, that they can take that into action. And Elvira is just the person to do it because she came here herself from Ukraine, Simi, four years ago. She went to Capilano College for hospitality management. But what is so full circle about this moment for her is that back home in Ukraine, she actually worked in human rights in a program to help refugees acclimatize, to help them get settled and integrate into communities. So pretty incredible that um, she was able to offer her services here to, to volunteer in that way. And I just want to share with you some numbers, Simi. So there are uh, 150 displaced persons from Ukraine that are expected in BC within the next week, according to the Ukraine Congress. And they're headed here on visitor visas. So they can't work here. They can't go to school here. But we're, the Ukrainian community here is hoping that the government changes that visa. So there's pressure on the government to do that now. And it's I've heard it's likely to happen, and that's what the Ukrainian community is hopeful for. With numbers of refugees in the worldwide looking close to 3 million, um, they are guessing that it's going to be about eighty to 90,000 uh, displaced persons from Ukraine that will be in Vancouver within a six-month period. So uh, not a huge time frame there. Um, again, they're not aware yet of what government funding will be made available, but they kind of, the Ukrainian community here has just readied themselves as much as possible. They're also working with uh, municipal city halls and talking to them about integration and, and what they can do there. And uh, if you've been hearing this piece or listening to the news in the last couple of weeks and you've been wondering, hmm, could I give my home up? Could we offer some space in our house to host a family? Um, it's possible. And they're screening and they want you to get in touch. Here's Elvira again. 
if you are friendly with different culture uh, people, if you are flexible with uh, your food, for sure, absolutely. And uh, Ukrainians pretty, um, they are also very open. They flexible to the food, to the tourists in the house. And I think it's easy to communicate them because um, some of them speak English, for sure, young generation. It sounds like, though, Roger, that there is quite a bit of willingness out there. So much willingness. Uh, The Congress told me that they have been inundated with help, with resources, and it's like come in every shape and form. For some people, it's uh, monetary donations. Others, it's uh, some form of labor or they're ready to offer work to a newcomer. So I would say, Simi, that having talked to a lot of Ukrainians here in the community in the last several weeks, one commonality between everyone I've spoken to is that they are hopeful. I haven't spoken to a single person who feels helpless. I mean, they're obviously angered Mm -hmm. by the war. They're worried about loved ones back home. They're stressed. But they are so hopeful that Ukraine will come out of this and come out of it stronger. Um, they've uh, people have also been telling me how proud they are of being Ukrainian Canadian during this period, as they see that people around them support uh, their their hope for peace. So nice to hear. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. So apparently, British Columbia now has a new method for collecting data on homelessness. It's the first of its kind in Canada. So what will this do for us? How will this help us tackle the issue differently? Well, to answer those questions, we turn to the Minister of Housing, David Eby. He joins us now to talk about this. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So what is this new method? Uh, Well, government collects a lot of data. We have uh, programs in health and in our social assistance programs. BC Housing collects data. Um, But we've never used it before to try to analyze how many people in the province experience homelessness, uh, even for just a single night. Uh, What we've done instead is we've had volunteers out uh, in the streets and workers physically counting people, trying to find people in the bush or wherever, uh, living in a car and saying, are you homeless and doing a short interview with them. The, The difference with this new project is that we're taking the data that government has. So when you use a shelter for a single night or if you're reporting that you have no fixed address, to social assistance, to try to figure out over a year how many people experience homelessness, and uh, and also the characteristics, how long they're homeless for. It's all anonymized data, but we're able to look for trends. You know, if someone has a, a particular, if they're from a particular region or they're a particular age or so on, how long they experience homelessness or how mental health issues uh, that are correlated with that uh, might impact the length of time that they're homeless and so on. Why didn't we collect this data before? This sounds like important information. Yeah, we always collected it, but we've never put it together in this way. So um, what we did was we looked at all the sources that could potentially give us information about whether someone had been homeless uh, and anonymized it and uh, cross-referenced it to, to make it all work together. And uh, what, what we ended up calling the Integrated Data Project found that a total of 23,000 people in the province uh, likely experienced homelessness uh, at some point uh, during 2019. And on average, about 9,300 people on any given day uh, were experiencing homelessness. So with the point in time counts, when we're just counting people out in the street, um, you, you get really a snapshot of a moment in time. And, uh, and that count this year said that there were about 8,600 8, people who were homeless uh, on that particular 24-hour period. Uh, 
Um, but, you know, it's kind of a distorting um, count because that, that number doesn't really reflect the really significant number of people who will move in and out of homelessness in a given year, which is about 23,000. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a very different way of looking at things. And it's um, you're right, it's surprising that this is the first time this has been done. But British Columbia is the only province in Canada that's doing either a point in time count provincially uh, across the whole province or this kind of data analysis. Other provinces aren't doing this work. Okay, so that was 2019 for those numbers then. Do we think those numbers are higher now? I suspect so. Now, uh, keep in mind that since 2019, we've housed um, uh, more than 2,000 people who are homeless and chronically homeless. And so uh, that would have a positive impact on those numbers. But also since 2019, we had the pandemic. And obviously, uh, there were huge pressures brought to bear on housing and services that people who are on the edge really depended on. So um, uh, the reason why this data is a bit dated, is it is from 2019, is because it was the first time we were running this project. Uh, the 2020 numbers we're working on right now and we'll be releasing in the coming months. And the cycle will get faster as we get better at doing this. Okay, so what do we do with those numbers then? How, you mentioned 2,000 people that have been housed, but that means there's a lot of other people who have not. That's right. And so uh, some of the data is going to help us identify and and differentiate between people who uh, might just need a bit of assistance, like a rent supplement or something like that to get into housing, uh, and people who are more likely to end up chronically homeless. Uh, Are there specific characteristics we can look for to identify people who are going to need more support? Obviously, we've always looked at mental health and addiction as key factors there. But are there other pieces we can look at, a particular area that, that uh, they're living in the province, uh, certain programs that they are or aren't accessing? Are there programs that are more successful in bringing people out of homelessness? And should we expand those across the province and so on? Right. Everybody talks about Metro Vancouver in terms of homelessness, but what other parts of the province are seeing this? Well, the, there was some really interesting data that came out of it. Uh, when you look at just the population, the sheer number of people who are homeless, uh, Metro Vancouver is far and away the largest area of the province where people are homeless. Uh, and it's certainly where a significant portion of our work is in terms of getting people indoors. Um, but when you look on a per capita basis as a share of population, um, some communities really stand out that otherwise would be lost in the data. So, for example, Fraser, Fort George, almost 1% of the population there is homeless. Uh, in the Caribou and Alberni Clayquot, these are communities and regions that you might not think um, of when you think of serious homelessness problems, but they have really disproportionate shares of their community that are homeless. And so this data helped us uh, narrow in on some of those communities in rural and remote uh, areas that may not have a lot of volunteers out doing a homelessness count, uh, but through the data, we were able to um, show that that um, they do need more support. Okay, so what does that more support look like then? Does that mean that, okay, we clearly have to go to this community to help out and find out why so many people are unhoused? Yeah, that's, that's part of it. And the other part of it is um, our current model with BC Housing around um, supportive housing really relies on a network of nonprofit organizations to put together proposals and advance a building project and work with BC Housing and work with the contractor. These are communities that don't have a lot of those nonprofits. So uh, it's informed uh, BC Housing and, and government that we need to have uh, better systems in place that work, that work even if there isn't an active nonprofit in an area to make sure that uh, right. housing is delivered. I mean, just because we can house people, which we should, doesn't necessarily mean, though, that that solves all of a person's problems. So what are we doing to make sure that when we find somebody a place to stay, that they are comfortable there, that they want to stay there, that they can build some long-term roots there? Yeah, this is um, some work that BC Housing's been doing in their own data analysis in terms of uh, when people are housed, for example, from encampments or that kind of thing and, and brought indoors. And so it's been an evolving and a, and a learning process. 
So um, uh, part of that data says that there's a group of people, uh, somewhere between 15 and 20% of people who are housed from outside into supportive housing, where they uh, then move out or they're evicted uh, back out to the street. And there are a number of reasons for that. Their behavior uh, is inappropriate in the building. Um, They are problematic with staff or with neighbors. They're hoarding. Maybe they're, you know, setting fires, whatever it is, and they're getting evicted, or they just can't follow the rules and, and they're not adhering to the basic rules to keep people safe in the building, and so they get evicted. And uh, so for that population of people, they need intensive supports, and in particular, healthcare supports. So um, they're not quite so sick as to uh, be a candidate for involuntary care in like a Riverview-type setting, but they're not so well that they can live in supportive housing. So that's why we have 20 um, complex care sites that are going to be opening across the province. Uh, health authorities will be operating these sites, and so they'll be far more in the nature of healthcare sites than uh, than just housing sites. And uh, and I think that this uh, will really be serving the needs of that population that are particularly visible. They're certainly having a lot of interactions with police, emergency rooms, and so on. And if we provide more supports in the form of nursing and social work and uh, and life skills uh, in these uh, smaller groups. Uh, we think we'll be more successful in keeping people housed and also making sure they're getting their meds and so on so that they're having better outcomes. Do you, do you foresee a time when the numbers would start to go down? Do we have to wait for those complex care sites to open? And, and when would that be? Well, I'm, I, uh, this is something that I really worry about is um, we have such huge increases in our province's population. We have a 30-year high in terms of in-migration from other countries and other provinces to British Columbia. And at the same time, we have a 30-year low in MLS listings and rental housing. Uh, so I've been out uh, working with cities, trying to educate mayors and councils about how urgently we need them to approve housing. I mean, even BC housing developments, many of them are tied up for years uh, with city councils, trying to get them through and approved and, and built. Uh, and so I'm just trying to communicate some of the urgency that these numbers are going to continue to climb unless we provide more housing in the province to respond to our growing population and uh, that's independent of COVID or anything else. The federal government has said they're welcoming 300,000 new Canadians each year, and a lot of those folks are going to end up in Metro Vancouver. And a lot of those folks are at risk of uh, of ending up underhoused or in, in bad housing situations or even homeless if we don't have housing ready for them. So um, uh, that's a really urgent thing that's on my agenda as Minister for Housing. Okay, and do we know when the complex care sites might open? Yeah, we already have uh, have one site open. There's a couple more that are opening imminently in Metro Vancouver. Uh, and then... Uh, the health authorities uh, over the next year will be opening the remainder of the 20 sites. All right, listen, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. David Eby, BC's Attorney General, of course, also Minister for Housing, talking about the new data collection method that they're using to essentially count the number of people who are unhoused uh, in BC and what they can do with that data now, how they can help. And there's obviously a lot of different reasons why people lose their place to live. Hopefully we can at some point start to see these numbers come down.